Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Friday morning, the 20th of May. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. The increased cost of living dominated debate inside and outside of Leinster House yesterday. Everyone is feeling the pinch and that was evident when protesters spanning a broad spectrum of society called for action outside of the doll. Students, pensioners, lone parents, trade unionists and politicians staged the cost of living coalition protest. In Inside of the doll, government argued it is doing everything possible to help people cope. We are facing a cost of living crisis. Uh, that inflation is at levels that we haven't seen for a very long time. Um, and the people are feeling the pinch, and it's more than a pinch. Um, a lot of people are struggling to make ends meet. It's affecting households. It's affecting families. It's also affecting businesses in terms of the cost of energy. Uh, people see it when they fill their car with petrol or diesel. Really see it when you see your, your electricity or gas bill and increasingly are starting to see it um, in other areas, such as uh, the cost of groceries as well. Um, And it is true uh, that uh, those affected the most uh, are those in the lowest incomes, uh, because they spend uh, more of their incomes on uh, food and energy than uh, people on middle and higher incomes too. But I don't think it's the case that it's only affecting people on low to middle incomes. Um, You know, people on average incomes, 40,000, 50,000 a year, working full time, are being affected too. The Tánaiste Leo Radker speaking inside uh, the chamber yesterday. I'm sure there's few who would disagree with what we just heard there, but there's a lot of debate and a lot of disagreement over whether the government can do more to help people cope with the cost of living. Let's discuss this now with Breed Smith, People Before Profit TD for Dublin South Central, and Fergus O'Dowd, Finnegale TD for Loud and East Meath. And good morning to both of you. Thank you for joining us on the programme today. Breed Smith, first of all, uh, let me ask you uh, about the protest yesterday, because I, I think it's easy to understand why people were protesting. We heard from Louise Bayliss on this programme last week telling us how lone parents are struggling and Sue Shaw explaining to us how pensioners are finding it difficult to, to make ends meet. But what are politicians protesting over? It's hard to understand why people before profit TDs and Sinn Féin TDs were standing outside of uh, the Dáil yesterday protesting about the cost of living when you're on salaries of over €100,000. That's a a fair point, but we're not protesting uh, about our own salaries. What we're trying to do is to mobilise civil society to react against the cost of living and to make demands of government. I mean, politicians led... The water charges movement, 
um, back in the day and uh, uh, we were very successful in stopping the water charges being implemented. So what we understand because of where we're coming from is that you can be inside the house and you can be passing motions uh, and introducing bills and making arguments and doing leaders' questions till the cows come home. And the government parties, because they have a majority, can ignore you. What they find it much more difficult to ignore is the voice of people power and the mobilisation of people on the streets throughout that's the democracy. country. That's democracy, though, isn't it? I mean, that's why we, yes. have, that's why we yes. have elections and people make their choice. That's pe- people power is the elections. And people power is also democracy. Uh, people power, people marching and fighting to change the world they live in is also very much democracy. It's at the heart of democracy, if you like. I mean, we'd still have slavery, only the slaves revolted. Uh, women wouldn't have the vote, only mm. women went out and fought for it and went to prison and no, no, I know that, but I mean, the point I'm making to you is that the most powerful way people can act is in the ballot box. And I suppose the thrust of my first question was, is if hardship is being politicised. If what has been politicised? Hardship, people's hardship, if that's being politicised. I don't understand that question. Well, that, I mean, this really uh, is uh, uh, an issue that people are finding very hard to cope with. Uh, and there's no doubt about that. As I said, the lone parents, uh, the senior citizens, uh, the trade unionists, the students and all of those people who are standing outside of uh, the doll. Uh, but are, are you using that position that they are in for political gain by forming a group like this and standing outside and alongside with those people? Well, I'm sure if we were, they'd be the first to tell us um, Absolutely not. This is an attempt to create a coalition of civil society to drive home the message to the government that they must do more and they can do more. And it's about bringing democracy onto the street as well as inside the doll, as well as having a voice in there where ourselves and other politicians will challenge the government, do challenge the government on a daily basis. We will have a movement outside in the street that will also say to them, we want change and we want it now. We can't manage um, and I have no doubt whatsoever that the pensioners uh, groups, the retired workers and the senior citizens parliament, the trade union members, the student unions throughout Ireland, the union students in Ireland, don't see it the way you're uh, suggesting at all. OK. Uh, Fergus O'Dowd, how do you see it? Well, I think that uh, everybody is aware, uh, every politician in Leinster House, about the serious crisis in the cost of living, and, and the government are very much aware of that. And that's why anybody, for instance, who was on the uh, the fuel allowance, that since January they've got €425 Euros extra to help them to keep up with the cost of living in energy. Now, that's obviously not enough, and everybody accepts that. And I think what the Tarnish just said yesterday in the Dáil was that between now and the budget on the 8th of October, we have to challenge all of the issues and to make sure that we deal with issues around healthcare, childcare, mm. families on lower income and students in higher education. So it's something we all have to tackle. And it's not just in Ireland. It's across the whole world because of the war in the UK. But wouldn't the government be better equipped to help people if uh, the Tonisha hadn't knocked 200 euro off your electricity bill? No, but what I'm saying, Michael, is that uh, the government also... Uh, looked at the cost of petrol and diesel. They increased the subsidy in the price of uh, petrol and diesel by twenty, mm. and 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 sorry, by twelve euros as well. And we're also looking at reducing the cost of drugs to families. So what I'm saying, where breed is wrong, 
is that she doesn't and needs to recognise, and nor was Pierce started yesterday, that the government is acting on this as best they can, but they will have to do more. Everybody agrees with that. Mm. So the question is, what will the next budget And the Taunashta like? was responding to Pierce Doherty yesterday, and the Taunashta recognised that uh, the, those who on the lowest incomes are hardest hit. So why are they not targeted with these measures rather than these universal measures which give uh, reductions in electricity, let's say, to sure. politicians, well, well, uh, to hospital sure. consultants and barristers well, and whoever else? Well, taking that point, Michael, that's a very good point. The problem is that to deselect the people... Uh, uh, you know, in other words, if you put a, if you put an income limit on the two hundred euro, for instance, how are you going to make that work? Because it would cost more to actually do that than it would to pay the money. And the point is that everybody is suffering. But I do accept that people on higher incomes have less of a problem because they have more money to spend. Uh, but the point is, the government is genuinely and absolutely concerned about all of these issues, and will continue to be concerned. And we'll continue to address all of them. My point, Michael, mm. on, as you probably know, as you know, anyway, in the Dáil, I'm in the parliamentary party, is I speak up for those on the lowest incomes and those who need the most support. OK, and but they're the ones who are hardest hit. Braid Smith, yeah, help, help Fergus O'Dowd for the next time he makes a contribution. Uh, what should he be saying when he stands up in the Dáil uh, to bring about some relief for people? Well, there are some very simple measures that the government could take, which would be no cost to the government. Uh, they took them during COVID and they could help hugely to a whole cohort of, very vun- cohort of very vulnerable people at the moment. One is to freeze rents, which we did during COVID, and the other is to put a ban on evictions. The, the amount of misery that's being faced by people trying to keep a roof over their heads is just incredible at the moment. Mm. And we're seeing working families going into homeless accommodation on a daily basis. Those two measures alone would help to alleviate it. But just to take issue with um, the government's claim that they can do more on energy costs because it's the result of the war and the rising international gas prices, etc. Actually, 40% of electricity bills are made up of standing charges of PSO levies and VAT, while 26% of every gas bill is made up of standing charges, carbon tax and VAT. So the state's regulator, crew, which has 70% control on gas and electricity costs, has not yet acted to stop while we're looking at gas and electricity prices rising, the level of profiteering by the suppliers and genera- mm. generators. They need to intervene to stop the profiteering while at the same time the prices are soaring. Right. And that means controlling the prices. Let, 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 let Fergus O'Dowd uh, respond to that well, because that, that was one of the recommendations from Task that they follow the Italian example uh, where there's a 25% tax on excess profits for energy companies. I would have no issue with that at all. Uh, the problem is that the, the major... A dominating person in the marketplace in Ireland is actually a state company called ESB. They own all the means of production. Uh, if, 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 if you want to make it as close a system as possible, that's what we have. And I think we need to tackle the ESB. We need to tackle and have a lot more transparency about their costs and how they operate. Uh, I agree absolutely with that. I also agree with issues in relation to you know, what the government are doing. And the point is that carbon tax did come in, but okay. the government reduced VAT on, 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 your, on the ESB. Okay, but you're not defending the government's position on uh, ignoring the profits that energy companies are making, no, if I, I can put it that way. I, I, I don't have a problem like a budget mm. is what we're talking about. I have no problem taxing excess profits. Absolutely not. 
why, why would they have a problem with that? Right. I mean, mm. we'd retrain the government as we're... Breed Smith, would you ask him to convince... Care, ...that don't have the same feelings as everybody else, that don't care as much as she does. The difference between me and her is I'm prepared to stand up in the doll and to vote for what I think is right rather than stand outside shouting and roaring. <laughs> OK, Breed Smith, uh, I'd say you want to um, respond to that. Look, what, what's the point, really? I mean, okay. nobody, everybody who knows me knows I, 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 I'm, I'm very principled and do stand up for what I believe in, inside and outside the doll. But to just say that the problem is the ESB is completely ignoring the reality out there. There are a plethora of uh, companies who supply and bill people for their gas and electricity who are profiteering from this crisis. It is not just about controlling, well. it's about controlling the whole market. And when they deregulated the market in in, in the early 2000s, um, the state allowed for the absolute huge increases in the supply of electricity uh, to the people of this country who once upon a time had the cheapest supply of electricity in Europe. Now we have among the dearest. Mm. So they have to intervene to control at least the electricity prices, the cost of rent, uh, the the, the fact that evictions are, are escalating at an enormous rate, and transport costs, we do absolutely welcome the reductions, but there needs to be more reductions right. in transport costs and supplement for food. Talk to me food a little bit more, if you would, about... The, most vulnerable, uh, the, the, the budget of the most vulnerable people. OK. Talk to me a little bit more, if you would, about the ban on evictions. Uh, you said uh, it, it's uh, terrible at the moment. It's going to get an awful lot worse, isn't it? And if it's terrible at the moment, uh, what's going to happen when the interest rates go up and how bad can it get? Yeah, well, the, here, here we have a sort of... Um, perfect storm of crises on top of crises happening inside the uh, the housing that has been dogging us for about 20 years. And successive governments have failed to actually tackle it because every mechanism they introduce is reliant on responding to the market. What we need is a much more clear intervention by the state on the supply uh, and building of state-run and owned property they could create a state building company that builds the social and affordable housing that is needed and at the same time make intervention on the mm. level of dereliction and vacant properties that we have is absolutely okay. scandalous. But what will that do uh, in terms of influencing the ECB, which is apparently in July going to increase rates by 0.25%. Paul Merriman of Ask Paul uh, was telling us the other day to expect rates to increase to between 6 and 8%. Well, I, I, I understand that and I know it's coming from the ECB and I know the ECB and everybody else will be saying it's the war, it's the general uh, malaise in the economy, etc. But ordinary people are not responsible for that. And when you think back on what happened here when the, and across the globe when the banking system collapsed, governments everywhere intervened to bail out, bail out the banks and it happened on a grand scale here in particular. And now it's time to face this emergency and to say we have to have the same apply to ordinary people. Mm. And, and I'm not sure of all the measures, but there are tax relief measures that uh, revenue can take to help people with the mortgage interest hikes. They've done it in the past. They could do it in the game. But the overall point is much, much more has to be done to help ordinary people. And that is why the, 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 the coalition t- uh, on the cost of living crisis has been created. There was a lovely atmosphere there, there yesterday. Uh, groups meeting each other for the first time, working mm. really well together. I'm really excited about what's coming up, which is a major protest in Dublin on the 18th of June. And they're all going to work towards getting their um, 
you know, their, their, yeah. their cohort out onto the streets the, for that protest. The, the first of uh, many, perhaps. Uh, Fergus O'Dowd, uh, the 18th of June, big protest in Dublin. What about the 18th of June 2023 and the idea that interest rates will have increased by 8%? Uh, what work is going on at the moment, do you know, or is any work going on at the moment to try and help people before this happens? Because uh, it's kind of like looking at a slow car crash. This is coming down the line and it seems as though it's inevitable and there's nothing we can do about it. Or has the government anything in its gift to take action to protect people from these increases or if they can't make the repayments to stop them from being evicted from their homes? Well, I, I don't have any issue with abandoned evictions at all. I think that would be appropriate and proper at this time because as we all know, if I'm evicted from my house today or my accommodation, I've nowhere to go because there is very, very little available resources out there that I can that I can go into. And that's why the government is driving forward on, on the housing. And that, for instance, in new homes, as I think the commencement notices in the last 12 months, there's 34,000 new homes have been commenced in the last year, which is really important. It's not enough. But as part of our plan, we're also increasing the availability, you know, of of of, of people to get affordable homes. And speed will know mm. that they're available at forty percent less than the rent. Okay, right all right. Now. Okay, listen, uh, uh, listen. Just just before we finish up, um, I, I I have the impression that Breed Smith thought at the beginning that my question about uh, the coalition being politicised was unfair, uh, and. I've heard you say a few times when the issues were discussed that you've no problem with what Breed Smith and others are, are suggesting. Um, sure. Would you be willing to join this coalition? <laughs> I was going to ask him that question. <laughs> well, I mean, if it's not a political group, I mean, sure, sure, surely it should be open across the board to people of all political backgrounds. Absolutely. And I mean, the best place to join the coalition is actually vote for them and I will get the changes that you want. But the, the the key point is, I've no problem meeting anybody. So will we see will we see you march alongside Breed Smith on the eighteenth of June? Well, uh, well Michael, I, I I don't have a problem meeting groups at all. No, 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 no. Will you will you join the coalition and march with Breed Smith on the eighteenth of June? Yeah, I, well, I tell you what, I've no issue with I've no issue at all with with supporting and within my party, I will argue for and support. Uh, you know, that, that okay. we would put a ban on the that's, that's a pragmatic no, I'm afraid, Breed Smith. No, I'll hold him to his commitment, nevertheless. Okay. <laughs> Thanks right. for asking him. <laughs> right, we'll leave it there. Thank you both indeed. Thanks for that one, Thank you. Thanks very much for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. Fergus O'Dowd, Finnegan LTD for Louth and East Meath and Breed Smith, People Before Profit, TD for Dublin South Central. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, the IFA met with Heather Humphreys on Wednesday to talk about uh, the problem of roaming sheep and uh, roaming dogs and worrying sheep. Let's uh, speak to Kevin Comiskey uh, once again, uh, the National Sheep Chairman for the Irish Farmers Association. Good morning to you, Kevin. Thanks for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, the Minister h- has made some sort of commitment to you. What exactly has she said she'll do? That's right, Michael, and thanks for, for having me on. And good morning to yourself and your listeners. Um, yeah, we met, as you said, there with the Minister, and indeed uh, we have to be thankful uh, to refer that meeting. So uh, both of them give, uh, both Minister McConnell and Minister Humphreys give a commitment on the 27th of January uh, when they were out on a farm. They said that they would act on this because it, uh, a certain amount comes under both of their remits. So um, 
Minister Humphreys was we had a great engagement and uh, she committed that she will look at all the anxious, uh, angles we put forward uh, including the single national database which is uh, very important for the microchip and, and the licensing and that they're all linked up and uh, the departments are talking to each other and you can have full traceability mm. to the to the responsible owner. The second one then of course is the sanctions uh, the increase and the sanctions that will reflect the horrendous damage can be done on the firms. Right. And the third one, but the third one is the vital and most important one, uh, is enforcement and personnel on the ground and funding put in place for the for, uh, enforcement. What does that because, mean? More dog wardens? More dog wardens and more powers into the Gardaí and everything that they can see right. dogs, look at dogs, check microchip and... Mm. Um, because as you know, well, if, yeah, and if that brings point. us back to the second point: uh, if people aren't fulfilling their obligations, what should the shang- sanctions be? Well, the sanctions at the moment is two and a half thousand a hundred euros fine uh, for not having a license. They have to be increased. We didn't put a specific figure mm. on it, but I know the minister has said she's looking at doubling them. But um, in my own mind, Michael, and you know, well, if the fine is 5,000 or 50,000, it doesn't matter because if it's not enforced, you know, it falls at the first fence. Yeah, but what's so, the sanction for letting your dog roam? Letting your dog, dog off the lead is, is uh, well, if it's out of control and that, or if it's found uh, doing damage, is the, the 2,500. But it, I, I don't know, right, is it... Uh, it all depends on when it's come to court at the minute and the sanctions on that. So you're talking, there's a fine there of 500, but um, to get mm. that enforced, and there has been no prosecutions on that for roaming. Yeah, but, but if you find a dog roaming, surely that should result in sanctions, whether it, it has uh, been worrying sheep or otherwise. Because if you were to do that, nobody would let their dogs roam. And if nobody let their dogs roam, you wouldn't have a problem. That, oh, sure, that's that's the exact point that we're making and that's where the the whole sanctions and the enforcement has to come in because there is dogs, there's dogs being out there and they've been caught uh, not alone worrying sheep, killing sheep and doing damage on sheep. They're lifted and they're taken away and the next thing they could be handed back to the, the owner within a couple of days as well. So that's really? totally unacceptable. I, I thought the dog was always shot if it killed sheep. Yeah, well, look at it, it mightn't be shot if it was taken away by the dog warden. It's supposed to be put down humanely, but it does come back. Right, yeah, but it is put down if it, if it kills sheep. Yes, yes, right, okay. now, sometimes it can be, but um, we have heard of incidents where the dog has got back to the owner through the back door, came in, and the people went back and got it out of the pounds or kennels, you know, a few days mm-hmm. later, and it has been seen back in the, in the same spot again. So mm-hmm. all that has to be, and that'll where the the legal thing will come in with the microchip and, and uh, traceability, the licence to the responsible owner. You know, that's where it all comes in. But enforcement, as we said there, and you pointed out rightly, if your dog is found roaming on that, um, that, that's where the powers has to go to the Gardaí and the dog wardens yeah. and that seize the dog and, and have him lifted. OK. Uh, when did the minister say she hopes to come back to you? She's sworn now she didn't give a date on it, but I know, and, and indeed in fairness to her, she said she was acutely aware of the situation because it happened on their own farm and they ended up they have no sheep now on their own farm because of what they've seen. So she said she's she's anxious to look at it and get it done as quickly as possible. Um, it, there's some of it that might need legislation change, and so if there's, not, if there's no need for that, it will happen quicker. But you know yourself, if it goes in, that something has to be changed in legislation. It can end up being a bit slower when it goes through the whole procedure. 
but it's with the Attorney General at the minute she said looking at it and she will move as fast as possible uh, on it. Okay, Kevin, we hope that is uh, the case uh, because it is uh, such a significant problem uh, for the people you represent. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Kevin Comiskey is uh, the IFA's National Chief Chairman. Now, thanks to Anna Andrade, who was on the phone to us this morning about the cost of living. In fact, a lot of people have been in touch with us on the phone. They've been texting us on WhatsApp. I think there's been a few messages uh, on social media. Uh, And people have a, a lot to say. Let's hear what Anna has to say. She says wages need to increase in line with the rise in the cost of living. We'll be hearing exactly that point from Force in a moment, Anna, uh, but we'll be hearing it's not the case for everybody later. Uh, she says ordinary working class people cannot afford to live. Everything has gone up and there is no money for any extras. We don't have a medical card and I noticed a sign in our GPs last week to say that the cost of an appointment is increasing by a fiver. It already costs a fortune and I always had an emergency fund. We dipped into that to cover our bills in recent months though and we're not sure what we're going to do when the emergency fund runs out. Thank you indeed, Anna. Uh, thanks too to Pat and Carrick McCross, who's also been on the phone. Pat says, listening to Fergus O'Dowd, saying the government is going to do more for hard-pressed people. There is talk and... Uh there's talk that they are going to do something in the budget but that won't be until October which is too late in my opinion how will that help a mother with no money to feed her children they can't wait until October I don't think politicians really understand how tough many families are finding it they're so out of touch with reality thank you Pat uh, for uh, sharing that thought with us and indeed uh, for your call to the programme somebody texting us about dogs saying my neighbour's dog was accused in the wrong in the wrong by a local farmer of killing sheep and they later found out that it was a different dog after the farmer shot the dog. Uh, very bad feelings now between all involved. Too hard to enforce, says our caller. A pretty dramatic uh, story indeed. Thank you indeed for sharing that with us too. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. When it comes to the increased cost of living and public sector pay, public sector workers and the Minister for Public Expenditure, Michael McGrath, are on the same page, up to a point at least. Public sector workers are due to get a pay increase of 1% in October. Both the workers and the Minister agree that that won't be enough. Uh, but that may be where agreement ends. Time will tell if it's the case. Let's speak to Richie Crothers, who's uh, Force's Assistant General Secretary. As you know, Force is holding its biannual conference in Killarney this week. And a very good morning to you, Richie, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme. Indeed, inflation, the cost of living uh, and pay rises are topping the agenda in Killarney, as I understand it. Uh, good morning, Michael. Good to talk to you, and good morning to your listeners. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's good to be back at the Union Conference. It's the first time that we've managed to get together in room uh, for the, for four years, debating the big issues of the day, including pay, inflation, jobs, public services, and, and the war in Q- Ukraine. But obviously, uh, uh, for ourselves, pay and the inflation crisis tops the agenda in terms of uh, the living standards of our people. So it's very much uh, on on. Uh, that our minds on the top of our agenda. All right, it's a, a very difficult situation, isn't it, for everybody involved? Because we're all feeling the pinch from the government's perspective. Though 
uh, it's a difficult one to contend with because, as it says, a lot of this is out of its control. We were speaking to the Mandate Trade Union yesterday. They were hoping uh, to see their pay rise to the living wage of 12.90. Uh, we're going to hear from bus and rail workers later who have been told they won't be getting any increase. Uh, and your members are relatively paid, uh, well-paid workers. Uh, and you'll be looking for increases in line with the rate of inflation, which could be 6%. It could be a lot more than that. So let, let, let me just say to you, we, we have workers in the private sector as well. We've got members who work right across the, the public sector, but also the semi-state sector and people who, who work in the private sector. So we, we cover a broad range of people. We also uh, believe that Ireland generally needs a pay rise. So it's, this isn't just about, uh, you know, public sector workers. We, you know, we, we have our, our negotiators are involved in the public, the private sector committee. Of, of Congress, but 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 undoubtedly the living crisis is uh, going through the, the the roof. Consumables are rising. The, the World Bank is predicting that energy and commodity costs will remain historically high until 2024. So for the first time in decades, obviously we're seeing a runaway inflation crisis, and uh, in its wake a cost of living crisis. So obviously. Rocking inflation is impacting on workers' spending power, and that is significantly reduced. But, Michael, as you know, the job of any trade union is to protect its, uh, the, the terms and conditions of its members, and it's our job to, to ensure that living standards are protected as, as a result of that. But the biggest employer in the state is, is actually the government. Um, so what we're trying to do is enter into uh, uh, negotiations which will protect uh, the pay and conditions of our people, as you've just said, the, the minister just over an hour ago in Northern Ireland accepted the, the legitimacy of getting back into talks, that the, the current agreement isn't fit for purpose and needs to be revisited uh, urgently from, from our point of view. And that's what we intend to do. Now, I thought it was interesting, your, your, one of your texters, Michael, Anna, I think it was, was talking about how uh, her own ten, spending power has gone down. And I think right across the northeast and across the country, people are seeing the spending power in their pocket and the ability to pay their their, 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 their bills is being reduced. So I think that what we need to do is ensure that any agreement that we have is um, sustainable. Uh, clearly, public finances are in a much different position than they were uh, only a couple of years ago. In fact, they're in a fairly buoyant position and the deficit is at a level two years ahead of what was anticipated at the time of last October's budget. So a lot of positives there, but what mm. we need is urgent action. And we certainly, Michael, do not view that these negotiations will be protracted or going on for an inordinate amount of time. We, we, we go back to the negotiating table next week and we, we want action and we don't want, um, uh, you know, kind of protracted negotiations, as we said. We, we haven't put a quantum on that and, and clearly that's what we're saying to our, our, our delegates and that's what we're saying to the press. Mm. What we want to do is commence the negotiations and map out uh, uh, a, a roadmap, I guess, for the for the next period of time, which well, ensures that, that living standards are protected. Okay, but uh, I mean, I think they're expecting inflation will level out at about six percent by the end of the year. At the moment, it's about seven. I think it's uh, to go up to eight percent, probably nine percent. But uh, there's so much uncertainty because of the war and other factors. And then you take into account the increase in interest rates, which will start to take effect from July, and that could go on for some time and could see significant increases. Uh, it's very hard to know where this will end up. What kind of a, a, an agreement will you be looking for? Will you be looking for one that can be uh, amended over the course of the next year or two? So I, I think for, for us, we want to talk about pay. 
But we also want to look at, at other social supports that exist across the continent of Europe. Uh, so, for instance, in workers, workers in Germany, Denmark and Sweden, for instance, uh, they, they, they have similar issues. But also, they're, they're not paying to, to, to go to the, the GP. They're not paying extortionate costs for childcare. They're not paying for A&E visits, uh, elder care fees, and, and rent is lower. So there are a suite of measures that the government needs to grapple with in order to, uh, to make daily living more sustainable and affordable. And I think that uh, we want to talk about pay, but we want to talk about other social issues that are pay-related. Uh, and and, and we, mm. we're up for the task. We, we, we know that it's going to be uh, a, a, a difficult time ahead, but we're adamant that it's our job as a trade union to protect the living standards of our people. And uh, we want to ensure that the government uh, ensure that, that, it, it, that it, people can pay their bills and, uh, and, and, and we, we, we negate the rocket inflation crisis that people are faced with at the moment. Okay, uh, and I take it you'll be asking your members to be patient uh, whilst you hope the talks will conclude pretty quickly. It'll take some time before people realise increases, will it not? Well, look, uh, you know, uh, public servants have done an, an, extra, you know, an extraordinary job uh, during the pandemic, uh, and, and I think that that's generally recognised that people went above and beyond the call of duty to keep the country safe and to keep the country uh, open. Mm. Um, ultimately, the decision makers in any deal that is negotiated or otherwise will be decided by our members themselves. Obviously, this is the beauty of democracy, where people will f- finally be the, the ultimate decision makers of whether uh, a deal is negotiated or accepted. I think entering the talks, as you, as you opened at the, at the top of the piece, that we're on the same page with the government, that the current deal isn't fit for purpose, and, and it's a time to revisit pay. Uh, we, we certainly will go uh, single-mindedly and uh, focused. We have also requested the, the uh, intervention of the Workplace Relations Commission to try and uh, aid any negotiation process, which we expect to be, to be difficult, as, I, as I've said before. Mm. But we're hoping that it'll be quick. We're hoping it's going to be sharp. And ultimately, our members will make the decision whether whether it's acceptable or not. All right. And when you drive uh, to the talks, you'll be paying two euro a litre of uh, diesel. And uh, you'll be hoping that by the time the talks have concluded, it won't be three euro a litre. And therein lies some of the problems, I suppose, Richie. Yeah, well, look, uh, you know, Michael, I, I live in a very rural area in, in West Donegal. And the, 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 in, the transport infrastructure is, is poor. I know lots of your listeners across the North East will be facing, uh, facing similar uh, charges. Just the, the, the ask of even going to work is, is too expensive for some people. That, that's how, how, how critical the spending crisis mm. has got. People can't afford to put juice in their car, and, and some people do not have the ability to use uh, pu- public transport. So we need an agreement soon. We need an agreement now, and, and that needs to be fit for, fit for purpose. And that's why uh, we're focused to ensure that we bring it to a swift conclusion as, as soon as possible. But we don't underestimate the task that, it, that it's going to be a difficult period ahead. OK, Richie, thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. Thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us from Killarney. Richie Carruthers, the Forza Assistant General Secretary. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, we heard uh, on the programme earlier this week uh, that some professionals are getting pay rises of 25%. Uh, the conversation seems to be centred around whether the pay increases would be in line with uh, the rate of inflation, which could be 6% by the end of the year. It's higher than that at the moment, uh, but a lot of people seem to believe that it should be 7, 8, 9, 10% or even more. 
Unfortunately, if you're a bus driver or if uh, you're working for Irish Rail, uh, you can't expect a pay rise, it seems, at least not for the next couple of years. Let's speak to Dermot O'Leary, who is the General Secretary for the NBRU. Uh, Wages are frozen for the next two years, apparently, Dermot. Uh, well, they're not, Michael, is my line, and that I can tell you. Just to correct something there, Irish Rail uh, is not involved in this. We're actually in discussions with Irish Rail at the moment uh, to try and uh, achieve a pay award uh, for workers and members there. Uh, bus Ireland are the three CAE companies in Dublin, Bus being the other. Uh, bus Ireland are the three CAE companies are unique in that they've written to us uh, suggesting and proposing from their point of view a pay freeze, a cost of a living award pay freeze for two years. Now, look, both ourselves and our two colleagues will not tolerate that, and we've written back to the company to tell them that. Uh, so something needs to give in this space. Um, but, Michael, to be honest, it's probably a bigger picture here. Uh, I, I don't want to get too technical or mm. too detailed here. Listeners other than to say that there's other people involved in this debate, uh, at least in the shadows, as I would call it. National Transport Authority are the people that organise uh, and regulate transport in, in, in this space, Michael. Uh, and they, you know, have, I suppose, put a lot of pressure on both bus companies, in fact, but we're talking about bus here and here. And I'm talking particularly uh, to LFM, LMFM. Uh, and at the moment, there's a tendering process in place for the 101 route, uh, which is currently run by Bus Ireland and the 133 on Wicklow. And uh, I suppose the way the tender process is designed, from our perspective, uh, it's designed uh, for Bus Ireland not to win that. And obviously, Bus Ireland have put their best foot forward to try and win the, those tenders. But the, but the, the, the tender uh, criteria is based on uh, 65% cost and 35% service. And the, the, the rates of pay in the semi-state companies, uh, thankfully, are pitched at a reasonable level. Uh, and those people that are competing with Bus Ireland, those wages are, are, are pitched at an appalling level. So this is the type of race to the bottom. So Bus Ireland themselves are under pressure because of that type of regime to cut their costs. And I think they can pass it on to, to more members. Uh, and quite frankly, Michael, we want to tolerate it. Mm. Well, uh, to contemplate not getting a pay increase uh, when we're seeing claims uh, which are pretty dramatic uh, in comparison to recent years uh, really isn't something that you could countenance, I take it. I know. Look, I mean, at the end of the day, right, the, the, the dogs in the street and anyone that's uh, awake any day knows that inflation, you mention yourself, is gone, is, is at, at levels now we haven't seen since the 1980s. And it suggests for a moment that any, any worker in any sector of society wouldn't get a pay rise. Uh, to suggest that uh, takes you back, uh, you know, to the, the Christmas carol days, uh, you know what I mean, uh, back to the Dickens days, if you like, and that's not just not tolerable. Mm. And for a semi-state company, uh, taxpayer-owned companies, to suggest that workers wouldn't get a pay rise, really, it's what describes really who actually runs what's there these days. And remember, Michael, the people that work, for example, in Drahada Depot and the Dog Depot bus drivers, decent, hard-working bus drivers, they get their wages on a weekly basis. The vast majority of wages goes back into the local economy. And again, I think people miss that sometimes when they hear people like me on radio shows like yours talking about pay rises and the threat of industrial action. The money that's earned goes backward into the economy. So if, if bus drivers have less money, then the economy, local economy all over the country, and in this case, the Drahada and Bindal, for, for example, mm. would have less money to spend in our local economy. So everyone suffers in that regard. Yeah, well, I mean, if you get a, a 6% pay increase, uh, you're really uh, going nowhere. You're standing still. Uh, and that means that you won't have any more disposable income. You You won't have more... Uh, money to spend on other things uh, but it's quite possible in fact that you'll have less because if everybody gets a 6% pay increase that will push the cost up for employers and that could push up the cost you're getting to that spiral Dermot uh, so the cost of everything could uh, go yeah, up look, I mean, so, but, but, but when you don't get a pay increase if everybody else is getting it you're talking about an effective pay cut 
You are, that's exactly it. They're just going to say that. And again, you mentioned uh, on the news headlines about politicians uh, proposed meeting with the health uh, board being cancelled. It's politicians that we're talking to here, really, because Poseidon, as I said already, they try to explain it, that are under pressure from the, the National Transport Authority. We believe the cut costs and the politicians, uh, they represent people all over the country. In this case, again, you know, I'll be appealing to politicians, anyone listening to the show this morning, uh, you know, to speak to government and, and basically put pressure on government uh, to allow the likes of Poseidon to operate in, in, on a level playing field and bring in low cost uh, and, and race to the bottom operators into the into the environment here is doing nothing only driving wages down and again if you put yourself the less wages and uh, the less wages you have the less you have to spend and again a six percent pay increase if it was to be achieved by anyone in, in society as you said is treading water uh, and really is only just keeping pace keeping pace with what's out there what's your next step well, the next step when we put into the company and we told them obviously that the, the gap or the chasm between us is as wide as Grand Canyon and we told them that in correspondence often normally you'd sit down with your employer and, and have uh, negotiations and go on into the next level which is the third parties. When we told the company the gap is so wide uh, both ourselves and to we told them it's so wide that we need to, to probably go to the WRC or the Workplace Relations Commission. There are third party institutions thank God in the state that will help us here and we, we would say the next step for us from the union side uh, is to go and talk to the, the, the Workplace Relations Commission and ask them to help us uh, along with bus here because already the Lewis mm. uh, drivers in Dublin uh, through their own trade union have got a pay rise uh, we're, in, uh, we're due in the labour court with Dublin bus for a potential pay rise as I said already we're in talks with Irish Rail so bus here cannot be and will not be allowed by us to be the outlier Alright but when they tell you that the five-year financial plan doesn't allow for pay increases over the course of uh, the next two years, uh, do you believe uh, that uh, they're not telling the full story, that the money is there? Because you don't want to negotiate your members out of a job. No, again, just to explain, and again, Bosnian is a fully funded state-owned company. And again, as I explained already, and the company can't say what I'm saying, to be fair to them. And I'm not being fair to them that much these but to be fair to them, the company can't knock, for example, the National Transport Authority or call the National Transport Authority out. I can do that, and no one's going to stop me doing that. I've been doing that for quite a while now. And if you have a retention regime which has 65% loaded on costs, then anyone can understand that if the cost base of your company is higher than the cost base of a person that comes in and pays appalling wages, then you're not going to win too many of those tenders. So the pressure needs to be applied politically, I would suggest, Michael. We'll do our job on the industrial relations front, but the politicians that I'm appealing to have more parties and none here is to get the government to realise that they have an agency under their control, under the government's control, that are, that are attempting to drive wages down in public transport. And again, that's the bigger picture. And that's something no trade union, nor ourselves, nor our two colleagues who represent in this environment, we're not going to tolerate that. All right. So uh, will you be looking for increases in line with the cost of living? Well, again, look, we're aware of what's happening in society and across the economy. We understand that if you have a 9% inflation figure on a month, this month, you said it yourself, it's, it should be 6% by the end of the year. We do our best to reach a level that will at least compensate people somewhat for, for the increased cost of living. To say on the radio show that we're going to look for 9% or 10%, that, mm. that, that does no one any favours, least of all our members. But we will put our best foot forward and we expect at the very least that the transport environment 
would we represent in uh, Bus Air and would, would Bus Air and Workers would enjoy uh, or be awarded the same type of pay awards that's already been awarded as I said in the trams. Alright well uh, it sounds as though uh, there's uh, difficult days ahead and uh, some Sorry, but it's just mm. one point I want to make. That's how long ago we had a three-week dispute in Bus Aaron. Mm. And we were told by Bus Aaron back then that the, 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 the idea behind uh, the changes back then would help the company uh, going forward and would ensure the company had a solid future. Uh, and we, did a, we took a lot of pain back then, and not as much pain as the company wanted to inflict on people back then, but we took a lot of pain back then. And the reward now seems to be from, uh, I suppose, Bo Searn and his pain masters in his, uh, thanks for doing all the heavy lifting, but we're not getting any reward for it. And again, that's not sustainable. Okay, we leave there, Dermot. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme. Dermot O'Leary is uh, the General Secretary of uh, the NBRU, the National Bus and Rail Workers Union. Francie and Dunlear uh, WhatsApping the programme uh, today saying there's absolutely no incentive to work anymore, even with a pay raise. It's usually wiped out in other ways, particularly in the private sector. The state has too much control over what the worker earns. Is it any wonder why our younger generation turn to drugs? That's if they're not lucky enough to get into college. And even at that, uh, you need to come from a wealthy background. Thanks, uh, Francie, uh, for your WhatsApp message. Uh, uh, text message uh, to us uh, from Margaret says, I'm not affiliated to any party, but I've discovered that the best politicians are always in opposition. They have the answers to all the questions and plenty of money to fix everything. Nothing is a problem until they get into power and then it's deja vu. No answers, no money, uh, nothing uh, can be done. What a surprise, she says. Thanks uh, for that, Margaret. Pat McDade in Drogheda, Drogheda Labour Party, says, Breed Smith would need to get her socialist ducks in a row. How can she call for a state-building company to to be set while at the same time calling the government to sort out the ESB. The ESB will be paying over £125 million plus dividend to the state coffers this year and more power to them, says Pat McDade. Uh, thank you indeed. John uh, has been on the phone. He says, how can anyone live on €206 Euro at the moment? Uh, thanks uh, for that, John. Uh, another call to us about dogs. Uh, quite a, people, a lot of people in touch with us about dogs. Fiona is in Dundalk and she says she agrees that there should be sanctions against owners who let their dogs roam with doubt, uh, without any control. Uh, I'm sick of being out walking and being nervous about dogs coming towards me with no owner in sight. It's scary, especially uh, if it's a large dog. The problem is, while most dogs are friendly, I won't do you any harm. You can never know what one might turn on you and they shouldn't be roaming on their own. Well, Fiona, you don't want to hear what Mick and Kells has been telling us. I, I, I don't think you want to hear this story, uh, Fiona, because Mick tells us that uh, there was a pit bull running through a field uh, in uh, Kells the other day around by the spire of Lloyd uh, he says, the field was packed with sheep. This is a pit bull running around a, a field of sheep. He says, no one was with the dog and he wasn't too friendly. Mick said he, he showed him the stick. Fair play to you, Mick. You're a braver man than me. Uh, but uh, thanks uh, for telling us uh, that story. Uh, sorry uh, if that disturbed you, Fiona. I imagine it, it did. I imagine it, it disturbed a few of us. And I say us this morning. Thanks for your text, Mick. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM.
You probably wouldn't find it uh, too hard to believe if I I told you it was being said uh, that a border poll could be held in the next decade. And you'd be forgiven, of course, for thinking it was Mary Lou MacDonald or somebody else uh, in Sinn Féin who had said it. Uh, But I'd imagine that, like me, you may have been surprised to have heard that a Fine Gael TD, Neil Richmond, said exactly this on Wednesday evening. He was speaking in Westminster and he joins us now, Neil Richmond, uh, Fine Gael spokesperson on European Affairs and TD for Dublin Rath Down. Good morning and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the, the programme this morning. It, it, it seems to be a surprising position for a Fine Gael TD to take because any time it's been said in the past, uh, I think the response uh, from the government parties has been that talk of a border poll is unhelpful. Yeah, I don't think it should be a surprise. I've been talking about the constitutional question for quite some time now, and I think, if anything, Brexit has made this a more relevant conversation. You know, I'm not demanding that we name a date now or saying the criteria has met, but rather we learn the mistakes of Brexit and actually put in the detailed time to prepare firstly through a parliamentary committee in the Oireachtas to look at what the challenges and opportunities that Irish unity will present. That way, if and when a border poll is called, and I fundamentally do believe, Mike, that one could be called in the next decade, that we're actually ready. And we can actually give people a genuine position. Because I travel this island a lot, and I hear from unionists or the growing rugby there in Northern Ireland or the slightly unconvinced people down here who say, well, you talk about United Ireland, but what does it look like? I think it's time we show people what it looks like, and hopefully in due course they'll be able to make a decision whether or not they want to be a part of it. Okay. You don't fear that when uh, we're told talk of a border poll is unhelpful, that that is code for uh, you're uh, encouraging people to join uh, loyalist paramilitaries. No, I don't think so. I think that's overstated. Of course, I don't underestimate how delicate things are in Northern Ireland or indeed how delicate they've been in the last six years, primarily due to the, the madness of Brexit and how poorly the preparation was for that. Ultimately, there are people in the loyalist community who will be aggrieved regardless of what I say about any issue. However, there is a huge growing number in Northern Ireland and the election results show us a growing number in the middle who are open to listen. Maybe they don't want to have that conversation right away. Maybe they don't want to be making that decision. But we have a responsibility to be able to show in due course what we would like to put to the people. Mm. Uh, is Michal Martin wrong? Is Fianna Fáil wrong? Uh, because uh, they don't want talk of a, a border poll. They have uh, this Shared Island uh, initiative. Well, I think the Shared Ireland unit is actually a brilliant initiative. And I think it's something that I talk about actually every week in the Dáil. I raise it with Michal Martin. And I think that is definitely something that's vitally important in the short term to try and break down the barriers across the sectoral interest, be it sport or higher education or tourism but also to bring people on a step that perhaps we move those discussions on to talking about unity and what it actually means for all people of this island. And bear in mind, the call that I made this week for an Oireachtas committee to be set up, it's not too dissimilar to from calls from other Fianna Fáil elected representatives like Jim O'Callaghan, TD, and Billy Keller, MEP, for us to push more into this direction. Mm, yeah, yeah. I don't know if it's gone well d- down well in the Fianna Fáil party, though, has it? Well, I haven't spoken to too many mm. Fianna Fáil TDs. I've spoken to plenty in Fine Gael, and I certainly haven't had any negative commentary from my friends in Fianna Fáil so okay. far. Well, I think uh, even O'Quave and uh, Mark McSharry got it in the era times. Well, perhaps you have to question their motivation and when they raise these prospects. But 
ultimately I've been working on the Brexit beat Mike for the whole period I've been engaging it I chaired the Oireachtas Special Committee on Brexit in the last session and I think that's the perfect example that we learn the mistakes from Brexit it's all about preparation it's not about mm. forcing the issue it's not about being contentious or aggressive and next week I'll travel to Northern Ireland again like I've been doing constantly to meet people from across the political and more importantly the community divide people who don't belong to any party politics but they do want further engagement and they are the ones who are putting the challenge and um, I think it was Doug Beatty the Ulster Union's leader who said you're constantly talking about unity well what does the United Ireland look like he mm. knows what the union looks like what the status quo looks like and if we actually believe in it and um, we need to be able to show it and do our homework and make sure that the economic arguments the social arguments are sound okay can Fine Gael be in government with Fianna Fáil if you're looking uh, to establish an Oireachtas committee on a united Ireland uh, if Fianna Fáil is saying park this issue for the term of this government? Well, no one said park the issue of forming a committee to look at preparation. You know, I know there are people... I know, but I, no, I no, mean, it's a fair enough interpretation, because, isn't it, you know? No, we'll, we'll give a, a true and accurate interpretation that ultimately people don't want anyone calling for a border poll, and I understand mm. that, and I hear those calls. I don't think the criteria has been met based on the Assembly elections. Mm. But as a TD, just like... Uh, Jim O'Callaghan from Fianna Fáil made a similar call on a slightly different issue uh, back in October. I think it's only fair that I raise my voice that I want my government, that I'm a loyal supporter of, to set up an Oireachtas committee, all party, mm. to look at this issue. And I don't see that being in any way in conflict with the opinions of my friends in Fianna Fáil or indeed the Green Party. All right. Uh, and uh, I was reading in the papers uh, about... Uh, this uh, event in Westminster that you spoke at uh, and you were talking there about the criteria and Michelle O'Neill was speaking at the same event uh, apparently and she was saying uh, that we don't know what the criteria is uh, and that that should be clarified. Uh, I think that's a position a lot of people would agree with. Yeah, and the Taunish just said the same to our own parliamentary party meeting on Wednesday. Now, Michelle wasn't at the event on Wednesday night. She said that at another event and I think that's a fair ask from anyone regardless of political persuasion across this island that as per the Good Friday Agreement, the decision to call a border poll rests with the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland and regardless if it's the current incumbent or someone in the future, it is in everybody's interest to know, well actually what is the tipping point? Is it based on election results? Is it based on seat numbers in the Assembly or indeed elected to Westminster? Is it about a core vote? Is it about opinion polls? Is it about demographics? We need to know the rules of the game, Mike and I think it's a, a fair request from anyone and I'd imagine there's many people in unionist households who want to know that as well. Mm, I'm sure there are uh, and for different reasons uh, of course. Uh, Do you think that your opinion is reflective of uh, the opinion that uh, is widely held in your party uh, because there's a lot of people who would describe uh, Fine Gael as West Brits or would have said you were a pro-Commonwealth party. Well two things there Mike and I really must say this West Brit as someone who's from the minority faith tradition is a really horrible term and it's offensive to many people and it was something my late mother raised me to say when someone's calling you a West Brit they're saying you're less Irish than them due to your religious denomination so I think we need to stop using that phrase in terms of pro But it's often been and I'm saying that it's a phrase that has often been used about Fine Gael Yeah and I'm just pointing from a very personal point of view, Mike, and mm. it's not that enough. It's not a nice phrase. It should No, it's it's not, but, but that is the perception that a lot of people have had of and Fine Gael. A uh, false perception, Mike, because we are Fine Gael, the United Ireland Party, and I think certainly any colleagues who I've spoken to about this issue, who has sat on Zooms with me over the last couple of years, who's travelled north south, who's done the Brexit work, there is an appetite, a really growing appetite, and indeed at our own, our last Ardesh, 
uh, was during the summer months, albeit held over Zoom, we reaffirmed our commitment uh, to having Ireland achieve unity by consent. Okay, <laughs> so uh, if that is the perception, uh, which I, I think you accept that some people would have had over the years, uh, it, it's wrong or it doesn't stand up today, is it? Uh, that's correct. No, I, I, I appreciate that some people would have had a, a perception about Finnegal that we were weak on unity or we were shying away, more important, from the conversation. That was probably reflective of the difficult times. You know, as a party, we are a broad church from our foundation in terms of people coming from the Collins tradition, the Rebenite tradition. Indeed, we, we still have an elected representative today whose great great grandfather was the last unionist MP elected in Dublin, one of the Dockles. So that is part of Irish society that is wide, is broad. But Throughout our party, it is quite clear our party position that we do want to unite Ireland. And I fundamentally believe that the, the tone and tenor of the conversation has changed greatly mm. due to Brexit. And therefore, as a party who prides itself on being responsible and sensible, that the responsible thing to do is actually start to look at what a united Ireland would look like. So if and when mm. the question comes, and it could be sprung on us, because as I said, and we agreed, we don't know what the terms um, that would drive a Secretary of State to call a border poll is the responsible thing is to have the homework done in advance because if we look at Brexit it's an absolute nightmare if you push through an issue if you haven't done your homework in advance. Mm. Yeah, uh, I suppose the next question is would the, would, would it uh, would, would uh, reuniting Ireland or uniting Ireland uh, would it win a, in a vote? Uh, would uh, the poll carry? Well, it's a, it's a massive challenge and I, I don't have that answer. I don't have the crystal ball. I certainly hope it does. I think there's a twin challenge there. Firstly, in Northern Ireland, there are people and we accept they are by definition unionists. They will never vote for this and that's fine. Although we need to, we have a duty to ensure that all their fears and concerns are reassured and that you can have full equality in a new Ireland as a British citizen. But there are, is that growing middle that need to be convinced and there is that concerned group in the, the South who ask not not unjustifiably what well, can we afford this do we want uh, to inherit some of the political troubles of Northern Ireland we have a job of work in our hands just by having a border poll there's no assumption that it would pass north or south that easily it's a campaign I, I really want to be a part of it's a campaign I want to see won in my lifetime but the way you win these things and the way you reassure those who won't be in favour is you do the preparation I fundamentally believe a parliamentary all party committee taking in genuine evidence like we did Brexit from academia, from the business world um, from the social scientists and look at the hard data and look at the models of other jurisdictions be it uh, Finland where they maintain a very large Swedish minority as equal citizens or indeed if you look at Germany and, and the mistakes they made perhaps in a rushed reunification east and west but also the benefits in due course Okay Interesting stuff. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us as always on the programme. That's uh, Neil Richmond, Finnegale's spokes- spokesperson on European affairs, who is a TD for Dublin Rathdown. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. What is it that's wrong with uh, the emergency department in Our Lady's Hospital? That's what Theresa in Navan wants to know. She says, I'd like to know what is supposed to be wrong with the A&E in Navan. I, I was a patient in the A&E on the bank holiday Monday and I couldn't say a bad word about it. Don't close our A&E in Navan. We need it badly, says uh, Theresa. Thanks uh, for your text. Uh, I take it that's come because of that meeting that was to be held on Monday that is now not being held on Monday and uh, obviously there's some confusion about that. Uh, I don't think there's too much confusion about what's going to happen 
happen with the emergency department in Navan. Certainly, if uh, the medics have their way, the people with the expertise have their way, they're going to close the emergency department, they're going to replace it with a minor injuries unit and the ICU beds uh, will be taken out of the hospital. That seems almost uh, inevitable. Uh, but we'll find out in time. Uh, perhaps that is not the case. Uh, let me bring you some more comments uh, about dogs. A lot of people in touch with us about dogs and roaming dogs and worrying sheep. Eric says the government should give a grant to the farmers for secure fencing to protect sheep from dogs and foxes for that matter. Uh, thanks, Eric, for your call to the programme. Uh, another call to the programme from Jim in Navid about dogs. He says, unfortunately, many people get dogs, but they're not prepared to take responsibility for them. If you let your dog roam free, it's not the poor dog's fault. The owner should be punished. Thanks uh, for that uh, as well, Jim and Navin. Now, the stupid paddies have been on the phone to us. There's always stupid paddies in this country, Arthur. Uh, Paddy Duffy is a stupid paddy. He says there's a few weird people who are starting to wrap the flag around themselves, and I wonder why. Thanks, uh, Paddy. Uh, who is a, a stupid Paddy, no doubt. Pat and Tully Allen, another stupid Paddy. He, he says, uh, do the PSNI, this is uh, about a, a United Ireland, and uh, you've got to think about it, you've got two d- different jurisdictions at the moment, two different police forces. And he says, do the PSNI want to become guards? Uh, I doubt it, uh, says Pat and Tully Allen. Uh, another stupid Paddy. And I'm not calling them stupid Paddies because their names are Paddy. I'm calling them stupid Paddies because they're from Ireland. Do you remember we used to always be called stupid Paddies? Uh, we got used to it to some degree, uh, but we thought it was in the past. Tony said the British Foreign Secretary, Liz Truss, has been accused of saying that a no-deal Brexit in, in Ireland would only affect a few farmers with turnips in the back of their trucks. Now, some might say this is just being Tories being Tories, but it does give an insight into the ignorance at the heart of the British bad faith when it comes to Brexit and of the north of Ireland. That's Padre Tobin speaking in the Dáil yesterday. The Good Friday Agreement is shredded. It is gutted. The executive has collapsed. Strong words uh, from the Ain2 leader and founder TD for Mead West, Padre Tobin, who was talking uh, about a couple of things. So there's concern mounting, of course, over the British breaking international agreements. There's the protocol. And there's now mounting evidence which confirms that British collusion is involved in the multiple killings of Irish people north and south. But yet, the Tories are ploughing ahead with legislation which would indemnify murderers and securocrats responsible for these killings. Now, let's hear a little bit more about indemnifying murderers and killers. This is Fianna Fáil's Brendan Smith. Ishok, as you are aware, the British government have now come up with a new variation on their already despicable proposal in relation to an amnesty for murder people who committed murder during the Troubles. So the the British government are now proposing that those who assist a new independent recovery body and and cooperate will not face prosecution. So now the British government are introducing a charter for the perpetrators of murder and other heinous crimes. We have a coalition of people, of murderers from the state forces and murderers from the paramilitary organisations. You quite rightly said yesterday, at the event to, to in to, at the event to mark the 48th anniversary of the Dublin Monaghan bombings, where 33 innocent people were killed and hundreds injured, that the Stormont House Agreement needed to be implemented and ensure that the rights and the concerns of victims are centre stage in all processes. 
a very firm rebuke must go to the British government in regard to this variation on their already discredited amnesty proposal. The Fianna Fáil TD, Brendan Smith, was asking the Taoiseach, Michal Martin, to comment on this. Uh, we are considering the United Kingdom government's published proposals in detail, but I've no doubt that we will have a very comprehensive range of issues to raise and questions to ask. But there's also, I think, a broader question of process. It has been our consistent position, and mine, and I've communicated this to the British Prime Minister, that the basis for progress on legacy is the Stormont House Agreement that was reached between the two governments and political parties back in 2014. If a significant unilateral departure from that agreement is now being proposed, then this would need to be discussed by both governments and with all of the parties, and there has to be and must be serious and credible engagement with victims and families. It's essential that both governments and the parties in Northern Ireland have real and considered discussion on any way forward on this deeply sensitive issue. International agreements are rarely broken, but it's a bit like waiting on a bus. All of a sudden, two of them come along. Uh, There's this amnesty, of course, uh, which has met so much uh, objection from uh, the survivors and uh, families of victims of uh, the Troubles. Uh, That's one international agreement that is going to be broken. And then, of course, there's the little issue of the protocol. Taoiseach, once again, we are dealing with a British government, with Liz Truss and Boris Johnson, and unilateral threats uh, to undermine the Irish protocol. Our only hope is that the British government are engaging in a farce that they're not really too hopeful of seeing through just to keep some of the Conservative Party happy. But that's obviously not good enough. It gives succour to the DUP, who are in the middle of cul-de-sac politics. uh, And we really need to deal with that. What has your engagement been with the British government? Beyond that, we need to ensure that the research for the Shared Island Unit is expanded, that we look at uh, the potential for Irish unity, and that we, the Shared Island dialogue is also expanded and we deal with the constitutional issue. That's the that's, only thing that we need to do. That's local Sinn Féin TD, Rory O'Muraku. Again, he was putting those points uh, to the Taoiseach in uh, the Dáil this week. Government's announcement, the British government's announcement of an intention uh, to bring in legislation uh, to circumvent and undermine the, the, the protocol. That is unacceptable. Uh, I've made it very clear that th- unilateral action is not the way to progress issues pertaining to the protocol. We've always accepted that legitimate issues have been raised in relation to the protocol, uh, but we also have been very clear, and I was very clear to the British Prime Minister last week, that the European Union have made very progressive and advanced moves in respect of the protocol. Uh, particularly last October, which were not reciprocated adequately. And I've asked, I've made the point, that the only way to resolve issues pertaining to the protocol is for substantive and professional negotiations between the European Union and the United Kingdom government. Uh, those should commence without delay. Uh, and in addition, I think the Assembly should be convened without delay. I think in, it's unacceptable in any democratic society that once the people have voted that the parliament for which they voted doesn't get established. All right, and that's uh, the Taoiseach spelling out what seems uh, to be the obvious, uh, but maybe uh, he'd want to give more attention to his turnips if you were to take on board what the British Foreign Secretary Liz Truss had to say. It was a couple of years ago, but it was highlighted uh, this week. Uh, thanks uh, to John, who's been on to us. Uh, I take it he's on. 
uh, illness benefit. He says, how do you live on 208 euro a, a week when you have a heart condition? He worked all his life and because he damaged his heart, he says he, he can't work anymore and I have no choice. Uh, it's very hard living day to day, even with the five euro increase. I have to cut back on food and fuel. Why can't the 350 euro COVID payment be given to people like me? Thanks, uh, John. Thanks uh, to anybody who's been in touch with us uh, for that matter so far today. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. Now you heard Dane Petter Toby and ask uh, the Tarnished uh, about uh, this turnips comment. Uh, Liz Truss uh, apparently saying uh, that a no-deal Brexit in Ireland would only affect a few farmers with turnips in the back of their trucks. This has come to light because of a tweet from Alexandra Hall, who is a a British diplomat, uh, who said uh, that it was said by Liz Truss in 2019 and that she no longer wished to peddle half-truths on behalf of leaders. Um, uh, Thanks very much, much Deputy. I I don't know whether Secretary Secretary Strait Truss made those remarks or not it's obviously up for her for her to could confirm uh, or, or, or deny them alright let's uh, talk to Padder Tobin uh, she should confirm or deny them because it, it really does sound to me like the British Foreign Secretary was sneering down her nose at the stupid paddies in Ireland yeah so for, for, for hundreds of years there has been an underlying nearly racism, racism amongst some within the British establishment towards Ireland and obviously colonialism and racism go hand in hand. You can't nearly have one without the other. So uh, that has unfortunately been part of the relationship between these two islands for, for, for hundreds of years. And, and this particular sentence definitely smacks uh, of, you know, Paddy Whackery at the very least uh, by a very senior member of the Tory British government. And, you know, some might say that it's just Tories being Tories. But, you know, for me, it highlights an ignorance at the heart of the British bad faith towards Ireland at the moment in terms of Brexit and in terms of the functioning uh, of the northern state. Um, and, you know, many people mightn't realise it, but, you know, the Good Friday Agreement is completely shredded in the north at the moment, is completely gutted. The executive, which is mm-hmm. the government, is, is, is collapsed. Um, you know, and this at a time where people are suffering from a cost of living crisis there in the north as well, too, where there's a housing crisis like never before, there's mm-hmm. a hospital crisis like never before, and 670,000 people are living in poverty in the north. So the idea that you would have the democratic institutions, the government, not functioning uh, at this economic and social crisis time mm. uh, is absolutely wrong. It's not um, good enough though, really. I mean, this is somebody who's at the heart of all of uh, these problems, who's uh, espousing... Uh, no dogs, no blacks, no Irish sort of ethos. Yes, yeah, so this is the British Foreign Secretary. You know, this is one of the most senior members of the, the cabinet uh, in Britain. This is the woman who's trusted, entrusted with negotiating on behalf of Britain uh, with the EU, with uh, the, the, the direction of travel. Um, and, you know, I've spoken to business organisations in the north and they say that the, the British Foreign Secretary has never spoken to them. And, you know, it, it underlines the instinct, which is, which is at heart here. The British are involved in a form of unilateralism, like the, the likes we haven't seen for decades. And what I mean by that is they're not acting in partnership with the, the government in this state or with the EU in any ways. They are mm. deciding what to do on their own bat, their way or no way. Uh, and you know, as a result, they're, they're crashing really delicately built uh, international agreements um, around, you know, 
on the ground at the moment. Like the Good mm. Friday Agreement was painstakingly created okay. um, for generations in, in terms of trying to build something that you know, both communities could, could sign up to and could function. Let me tell you something about that that won't come as any surprise to you. Uh, the Good Friday Accords are the bedrock of peace in Northern Ireland and the beacon of hope for the entire world. Ensuring there remains no physical border between the Irish Republic and Northern Ireland is absolutely necessary for upholding this landmark agreement which has transformed Northern Ireland. This is part of a, a statement uh, that was published yesterday by uh, the Speaker in uh, the House of Representatives in the United States, Nancy Pelosi. And I'll just read a little bit more of it because it is a significant statement. She says, It is deeply concerning that the United Kingdom is now seeking to unilaterally discard the Northern Ireland Protocol. Negotiated agreements like the Protocol preserve the important progress and stability forged by the Good Friday Accords, which continue to enjoy strong bipartisan and bisemural support in the United States Congress. As I have stated in my conversations with the Prime Minister, the Foreign Secretary and members of the House of Commons, if the United Kingdom chooses to undermine the Good Friday Accords, the Congress cannot and will not support a bilateral free trade agreement with the United Kingdom. It is a significant statement, is it not? It is, and it's 100% welcome. Um, because what we in to have been asking the government to do is to really get tough uh, with the British. Um, and I welcome the fact that our own foreign minister, Simon Coveney, has at least used stronger language in the last week because this British government don't understand subtlety. Uh, they need to know that you know, they are on the precipice of really damaging their own self-interest. Because it's their own self-interest that govern every decision that they're making here. Um, you know, the, interna- the Good Friday Agreement is an international treaty. I believe this government, our government, should be exhausting all international legal avenues to make sure that it's implemented. I believe that we should be pushing for MLA salaries to be suspended while the executive is, is suspended in the north. And, you know, we should be really harnessing the power of the White House and the EU to put pressure uh, on, on the British government. Um, it is just intolerable and that we have, obviously, the, the, the political institutions busted in the north, mm. but also now the, the protocol on which you know, Brexit is, is, uh, currently sits uh, being taken out of, uh, of play. And if the protocol is removed, we could be looking at a land border uh, mm. between both sides of this country of ours, uh, which would be devastating in terms mm. of uh, the economy. Well, Nancy so, Pelosi uh, said exactly that when she was chewing on her turnips. And, and, and again, this, this is why we have to really play hardball with the British, because um, there is an underlying uh, ignorance at the heart of the British approach uh, to Ireland. And for too long, our own government has been far too gentle with them, far too uh, diplomatic, far too subtle. And there needs to be a far stronger approach uh, in terms of this. And just another issue that's, that's wrapped up in this. So, you know, there's, there's more information coming to light recently about British collusion, the Ombudsman uh, for the police service in the north has done a number of reports which has underlined the level of collusion between the British state and murders of Irish people over the last 50 years. Many of these people who are victims and survivors of this violence uh, are coming to a certain age now that they don't have long uh, to go uh, before, you know, they, they have to get this truth and justice now, uh, or many of them will pass in the next uh, 10 or 15 years. Mm. Um, and what the British are doing is they're shredding prior agreements that there would be a pathway to truth and justice for these victims and survivors. And they're now saying that there should be a, an amnesty for British troops in terms of the, the murders that they carried out. So, and, and to put that in layman's terms is the British are looking to get away with murder 
in terms of their actions in the north and the south. And remember, we're talking about the Dublin and Monaghan bombs. Uh, we're talking about you know dozens of murders that were carried out in the south of Ireland as well uh, with the collusive help of the British uh, state. And again, the, the Irish government have a role to play here. We have a new bill. Ainto has published a bill which would allow for a commission of investigation to be set up in this state, which would um, be able to compel evidence in this state, hear evidence internationally, and also refer to reports that have been written internationally to fill in the gaps so that there can be a proper structured investigation of the, the length and breadth of British collusion uh, in, in, in Ireland. But, and it, it takes the government you know, a backbone to take that step, but I believe if they did take that step and start to play hardball with the British there would be some understanding uh, from the British side of, of what they're up against in terms of this. Okay. Uh, while you're with us, uh, you bring with you news uh, about the hospital. Yeah, so just to, to, to let people know, um, the, the issue of the hospital is still very much in a precarious situation. The, the minister approached me a couple of weeks ago, Minister Stephen Donnelly, the Minister for Health, and he said he wanted a meeting with TDs in relation to answering questions that we may have uh, about the transition from an A&E to uh, a lower standard of care, a lower uh, level of care at Navin Hospital. Um, and that meeting hasn't happened yet. But what we're doing now uh, in the Save Navin Hospital campaign is we're starting to, to ramp up, to mobilise, to show the government that we are not going to accept uh, any reduction in A&E services in Navin. So there is a public meeting of the Save Navin Hospital campaign on Monday the 30th uh, of May, at 8 o'clock in the New Grange Hotel. Uh, and <clears throat> the many hundreds of people who have been involved in organising uh, our marches and our demonstrations and protests over the last 10 years, I would invite them and urge them to come along to that meeting uh, on Monday the 30th at 8pm uh, in the New Grange Hotel in Navan. Did you get a, an email last night inviting you to a meeting with the Minister on Monday? Well, there's a very strange thing happening at the moment. I know that one of the TDs in the county has said that he got an email and then that email was withdrawn. I've looked um, back uh, over any emails that have come in over the last 24 hours. None have come to me from the department or from the minister or from anybody uh, concerning the hospital. Um, so, and none have been withdrawn as a result of it. So there seems to be some level of confusion from the department's perspective over this proposed meeting. But confusion is uh, the modus operandi in which the department have worked. Um, so this is nothing new and, and is not surprising at all. OK. Has there been a response to questions that you tabled? We have uh, put in um, a, a rake of questions in terms mm. of, um, you know, there's been rumours that ambulances are being diverted mm. uh, from Navan Hospital. Well, that goes back to that HSE board meeting. They said that that should happen as a matter of urgency. Yeah, so I asked the minister uh, this question, and the minister said he didn't know, and he would ask the HSE to respond to me. So they haven't given us any details uh, in terms of that. But we mm. do know that the, the medical experts, the medics, uh, the most senior medics in the RCSI group and those in Drada are saying to us very, very clearly, that any efforts to close the A&E in Navin would put undue strain on their own services in Drada and would be a threat to health. Okay. And we also know that... Well, there, there is a question over that based on those minutes because Dr. Colin Henry said that the medics in Navin believe that it should be closed. Yeah, listen, listen we're hearing two stories uh, in relation to this. Um, but unfortunately, you know, what often happens is that a policy that's written in stone in the HSC has to be implemented and people who are paid to implement it then use certain evidence to to implement it. So, you know, um, I, I don't give credence 
uh, to people uh, who are seeking to implement that 2013 policy, which is to close the A&E in Navan. I think that we have to listen to the, the most up-to-date information on uh, uh, A&E uh, standards. And anybody listening to the show will tell you, you know, A&Es are under fierce pressure. There were, a report was published just in the last two weeks mm. that said that we are at a record level of waiting time in A&Es around the state, that people are waiting 13 hours I know, but you don't want to go into hospital and be told you have angina and die of a heart attack, uh, and therein lies the dilemma. No, but the the solution to that, Michael, is very clear, that you provide the necessary consultants cover uh, in relation to this. Okay. And and, and just the the final point on that is, we've been told for a a, a while now that um, it's because of adverse incidents in the hospital, you know, that the the HSE are travelling in this direction. But my parliamentary question shows that the biggest adverse incidents increase in the last five years has been in the hospital group that they're pushing us towards. OK, our time is up. I'm sorry, we have to leave it there. Thank you for joining us. Thank that's Ain to Leader, TD for Mead West, Pater Tobin. That's it for this week. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme on Monday morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Okay, I have two new obsessions that I need to share with you. Impress No Glue Press-On Manny's and Impress Press-On Falsies Lashes. Trust me, these are getting ready game changers. Both require no glue, so there is no damage to your natural nails and lashes, no mess, and no annoying dry times. Just one step and you're done. Boom. Instant glam. Visit impressbeauty.com slash presson and use code PRESSON25 at checkout for 25% off Impress Manicure and Press-On Falsies.